In this episode, we'll discuss recent Netflix user tests, emphasizing data versus intuition when making design decisions, and the importance of having clear decision makers. Welcome to Colored by Design. This discussion series looks at design issues through a uniquely biased lens. Our hope is to empower a new breed of creative as they enter into, mature, and navigate through the business world. I'm Corwin, Senior Global Creative Director. And I'm Jesse, Senior Experience Designer. Let's get into it. Good evening. Hey, 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 how's it going? It's going well, how about yourself? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. So as we get into this week, a lot of uh, good stuff going on. Had a pretty good day in the office or good week in the office. And I know you kind of had some topics that, you know, I'm looking forward to sharing uh, with our audience today. Um, but before we get started, I want to give a, a disclaimer. Um, so currently we are recording this episode and we're not together. Uh, we're using technology to try to bridge the gap when we can't be together. So uh, forgive us for any kind of internet latency issues or audio issues. We're going to do our best to refine it and make sure that the experience is crystal clear. Yep, totally. Always iterating on how we can make this better. So uh, yeah. join us on the journey. <laughs> right on. All right. Well, uh, any uh, anything remarkable happened this week that you want to kind of share with the crew or you just want to kind of get right into it? Yeah, let's get right into it. Um, over the past few days, uh, some of the biggest news coming out of the tech space um, as it pertains to products that all of us uh, use probably daily and love is uh, Netflix. So for those who are unaware, Netflix has been testing a new um, ad format on their uh, service. Um, and it's, it's really kind of surfacing a lot of interesting uh, design decisions and business decisions that are being made in, in the background. Um, but I uh, want to emphasize that these are tests, so it is possible that you haven't seen um, this specific test. Uh, but Netflix describes the tests as follows. We are testing whether surfacing recommendations between episodes helps members discover stories they will enjoy faster. And I don't know about you, Corwin, but I have often opened the Netflix app and scrolled for 10 to 15 minutes looking for something and having so many great options to choose from have ended just watching the same old uh, series that I already know and love, mm. primarily The Office and Parks and Recreation. So... I certainly see what they're trying to accomplish with this, um, but it, there has been some kind of user pushback. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I'm more of a, uh, the way I use Netflix and the way my wife uses Netflix, we have our specific shows. It's almost like when we you know, go out to dinner, we can go to, you know, we have like maybe 10 or so restaurants that we love to go to. And every time we go to those restaurants, we get the exact same thing when we walk into that place, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I think we use Netflix in the same way. Um, so, you know, she has her show. She loves Orange is the New Black. I love House of Cards. Um, but what's interesting is that our kids, they watch like consistently. So my son, he's watched Friends, the entire series, all what, 10 seasons of the show, <laughs> like three times. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That oh, wow. 70s show, he's watched it three times. And I said, oh, have you watched Seinfeld? He's like, it's not on Netflix. So no, I can't watch it. I'm like, yeah. wow, that's interesting. But um, so I wonder how many, um, I think it's interesting. First, the, the different types of viewers that I'm sure they have, and I'm sure it's splintered by how people use it and watch it and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But 
Right. Um, so essentially what they're doing then is they're basically advertising other shows in their right. other shows. They're not, so they're not doing, they're not doing regular ads like, you know, no. Snickers and Sprite and whatever else. It's just regular. It's just, that's interesting. I think that that could be helpful. Um, yeah. Yeah. That could be helpful. Yeah. So um, some of the, the articles that have been out recently are comparing uh, Netflix to more traditional TV. So, um, you know, Netflix is kind of the, the, the group that pioneered the binge watch where you sit through an entire episode, and we all know this, but you sit through an episode, um, episode ends, and then the next episode immediately starts, right? And so you can lose track on, of how much time you've been watching this series or, or what have you, and you can look up and then the whole thing is over and you've been sitting on your couch watching this for 10 hours because you've been so engrossed in the story. And, you know, given that Netflix kind of pioneered the binge watch, a lot of people are surprised that at the end of an episode, they would insert an ad. Um, I do think that this format is going to be less annoying for most people than traditional TV advertising in large part because they're only advertising Netflix original content. Uh, and this is in addition to the autoplay ad for whatever they want to promote um, on your profile that day that happens when you open the Netflix app. So uh, if you haven't used the Netflix app in a while, when you open it, um, especially on a television, the header area is playing usually with uh, Netflix uh, original content. Um, over the past few days, it's been playing all the boys I loved before. And maybe this is because I've been watching it on my wife's profile. <laughs> I don't know that they would want to recommend that to me, but uh, it's a, it's a rom-com essentially. Um, I believe it's rom-com. I haven't right. watched it. So you can fact check me on that, but um, they do a lot of these auto playing. And if you go into an episode and you don't actually click it to actually start watching, it will just auto play. And if you don't leave, um, the sidebar menu will kind of go off the side and you're just into it. And I think this is really interesting. I wonder what user tests they've done to kind of verify the behavior at a large scale. But back to my kind of original, this is how I've been using Netflix. I can be stuck browsing, you know, endlessly looking through all their titles. Um, and this kind of goes back to this, this thing called the paradox of choice or the tyranny of choice. Um, the Paradox of Choice is a book written by Barry Schwartz where he argues that eliminating consumer choices can greatly reduce anxiety for shoppers. So when we have access to everything all the time, how do we make a decision as to what to buy or what to watch in this case or what to listen to in the case of Apple Music or Spotify? Um, and there are a lot of technologies out there that are trying to get recommendations perfect so that, hey, you know, my algorithm knows exactly what you like every time, but often it's not perfect and it doesn't know what exactly you like. So it gives you a wide range of choices. Well, if the choice range is too wide, you ultimately can be paralyzed by that choice range and choose nothing or choose what you're familiar with. And Netflix wants you to branch out and watch more of their original content to find more series that you love and you want to binge because that, that increases pieces the value of Netflix to you in your mind. Um, so this is a really interesting way that they're trying to approach um, solving for that problem. That's crazy. So I'm going to say this with all due respect and pure love. That was the nerdiest <laughs> reply I have ever heard. Hey. You know what I'm saying? So, hey, that's why I love you. You got that, that boy, you go deep. 
but <laughs> I, and I simplify it, right? It's like, um, I, I, I'm not a big fan and this will kind of lead into our kind of another topic later in the conversation. But, mm-hmm. um, while I do value, uh, what was the name of the book that you said that the gentleman wrote paradox of the paradox of choice, paradox of choice. Um, yeah, I, oh gosh, I struggle with things like that. And, and especially in design, because it, a lot of design decisions and a lot of best practices and a lot of the ways we do things now are based on somebody else's writing or methodology or, you know, trend or hypothesis or whatever, you know, and <clears throat> it's yeah. interesting because even with this, this Netflix one, right? Like I, I, again, going back to the restaurant thing, I go to certain things for certain reasons. I don't go to Netflix or HBO or Hulu unless I have a very specific need. Yeah. You know, so like if I just need to veg out and I'm just like, oh gosh, I just want to kind of kick back on the couch and just kind of, just kind of zone out for a while. That's cool. And again, we all know that we'll go to our TV, we'll click through with our remote control or we'll go to our podcast or some music headphones or, you know, you'll find something to tinker around with in the garage or whatever your thing might be. But there's, there's a very select few things that I really am in the mood for at that time. So I love, love, love movies. And mm-hmm. so if I'm like, oh, I'm going to veg out, I usually will go sit down and think, what am I in the mood for? Hmm, I know I've got, you know, Snatch on, on record <laughs> right now on DVR. Or I got, oh, I haven't seen that new Mission Impossible. So maybe I go to the movies and check that out. Eh, yeah. You know what? I actually like that George Clooney and Brad Pitt stuff. Let me, oh, I'm going to watch Ocean's Eleven. Okay, cool. Yeah, Ocean's Eleven. Let me go. Let me see if I can find Ocean's Eleven. Do I got to go to Netflix? Do I got it on DVR? Do I got it on Hulu? Is it on HBO Go? Where's it at? Yeah. You know? So I think the, the, the point is, is that I feel like we're all coming to these platforms with different needs, motivators, you know, drivers. So, you know, for, for some, I'm sure this recommended engine with autoplay, this is what's on. <clears throat> is going to be, you know, extremely, you know, uh, grateful. People are going to be grateful for it. Yeah. And, and other folks, I'm sure, are going to hate it. However, at the same time, I'm sure there's going to be times where the opposite is going to be true. Wow, yeah. I didn't know what. Hey, honey, I discovered this new show. Check it out. Yeah. Right. Because I do love that, and I'm a big, I'm a big music fan. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, I, I subscribe to Apple Music. I, I, I don't subscribe to Spotify, even though it is a really cool platform. It just isn't my, you know, platform of choice. And then my wife, she loves Pandora. And on Pandora, we get a different mix of music than we get on Apple Music's algorithm. And again, I don't use Spotify enough to really know how it mixes stuff. But we hear our favorite music on Pandora. It's like what they've done has really tailored our taste. Apple is exposing me to new things I would have never in a million years have thought of listening to. Yeah. You know, so that'll be interesting to see um, how, you know, this Netflix serving up content, um, you know, to users is going to help with discovery. And, and also, you know, let's talk about the, the, the business strategy. Why are they serving up this content all of a sudden is really the question. Yeah. And I think that if you look at both of these platforms, Netflix and Apple Music through the lens of the platforms that preceded them um, or the jobs that they're trying to fill for people. I think that the autoplay, especially in terms of what Netflix is doing, becomes a little bit more clear. But to your point, when you're looking to sit down and veg out and you turn on the TV, something is already playing. 
you don't have to make a choice as to what to watch. Yeah, that's a good um, point. You, you turn on the TV, something's already on, you're already passively consuming something, and then you can change the channel. Right. Whereas previously with Netflix, if you opened it, you had to make an active choice as to what do I want to watch right now, which might not be what you're trying to do at the moment. You're trying to turn something on and veg out. And similarly, for something like a streaming music platform, if you turned on the radio, something's already playing on the radio. That's Whereas right. if you turn on you know, Apple Music, okay, what do we want to listen to? There's a choice there, and that choice can be friction, and these platforms are trying their best to remove that friction. So I think that um, it'll Actually, be really interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. No, that's a, that's a super interesting point. I didn't think about that because at first I'm thinking, you know, I'm putting my, cause I think, did you read that comment that we, that was on the article where the dude was saying I'm, the autoplay was kind of annoying. Yeah. Too? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's interesting, right? Because all Netflix is really doing is what television has done for years. Right. Um, like I said, what radio has done for years. Coming up at the five o'clock drive time, we're here with Jesse Jackson in the news or whatever, right? <laughs> They're always yeah. promoting other content on their platform, plus the worst commercials ever. Right. Uh, but what is very interesting about what you said is that I'm thinking, hey, I'm paying my $7.99 or $13.99 a month for this. I don't want these bleeping, you know, blah, 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 dictating to me what I watch and when. But to your very good point, it's like, yeah. bro, you're paying $100 or more on cable and and you know for your direct tv or your you know uverse or, or comcast or whatever you have and you're getting the exact right. same experience and, and and what's crazy is that at least netflix is serving up content that i i would imagine based on your viewing preferences it's content that you might be interested in i would hope yeah um but when you turn on your televisions wherever you left it off and i might you know i might have left off on watching you know the baseball game on 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 abc and when I came back, it's got Little House on the Prairie. You know what I mean? Right. So I was like, oh, my God, this is not my speed at all, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting that it's kind of really just mimicking. I think in that, in that article, the one that you referenced, it, I think it said at the top that, you know, as much as Netflix has been kind of groundbreaking in this way, it's kind of now normalizing into traditional television type platform, you know, or right. something to that effect, which is, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. And kind of to your point earlier about the business decisions behind it, I think that's where we as designers can kind of dig in a little bit and seeing what's happening and just imagining, given that we don't have access at this point to um, behind the scenes information, just imagining what those conversations are like. Um, there's a trade-off here that's happening between consumer sentiment and um actions on the ads and this is again purely conjecture i don't know if it's true or not but given the the tone of the majority of the comments that you see in these articles a lot of people are unhappy with the fact that you know ads are back in, i don't want commercials on my netflix right i pay a, i pay a certain fee for this i shouldn't have to be bombarded with commercials um and i think a lot of people would agree on the surface that yeah we don't want commercials especially if we don't like what you're recommending to us but if you dig a little bit deeper and look at the problems that they're trying to solve you know one where they're trying to remove friction in the viewing experience and remove that first choice that you have to make in order to start consuming content um, it, it kind of makes sense and then also what data are they looking at behind the scenes as far as interactions with those ads how many people are clicking on them how many people are are watching these series after 
um, seeing one of those autoplay ads and what is that lift in those audience numbers and is that lift in those numbers worth you know maybe making a certain section of their user base upset with them right i think there's a lot of really interesting kind of math that's going on here well so let's go to um i think that you know i don't i don't necessarily think a lot of people are and again uh go down the same road we don't we you know we're just two dudes talking but um yeah. you know it's change that a lot of people don't like um, right and because again it's 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 context right when i when i sit down and i'm watching television i'm not so offended by commercials coming up because i'm used to it in that environment in that context right yeah. so when a commercial comes on i know i get up and go get some chips or go to the bathroom yeah. Uh, but when a commercial comes on in an environment to where I'm used to not having commercial, then I'm really upset. Like, yeah. um, right now, right. We, like I said, Apple music is my platform of choice, but my wife really likes Pandora. So I'm like, I'm paying for the family plan for Apple music. You're over here listening to free Pandora with these crazy <laughs> ads and you're killing me right now. Why? Yeah. I'm used to listening to my music ad free because I'm paying for it to be ad free. Now right. when I turn on the radio. I don't like hearing the commercials, but I'm not like up in arms. Why? Cause I'll just switch the dial to one of the other five ones that I happen to like, you know? Yeah. Um, but so I think that that's part of it. And, you know, I think I just did a quick little search out here on the old Google and it's like, you know, 62% of people, you know, don't like change or 80% of people don't like change. And it, it, I don't think people have a, I mean, obviously people don't like for them to, for you to change what they like. Yeah, that's what it is. You know, I remember uh, eBay when they first came out back in the day, they had, you know, pretty, you know, uh, JV <laughs> um, <laughs> design because it was new. It was mm -hmm. the beginning of the Internet and they're doing this great little auction platform and they had this horrific yellow color that was on the homepage. And they simply mm -hmm. wanted and it was a light yellow, almost like a light post-it note yellow. And mm -hmm. uh, they just wanted to get rid of that. They just want to make it white. And they deleted it, turned it white. And again, the text on top of that post-it colored yellow was already black. So they just got rid of it. And man, they got a lot of bad emails, a lot of bad feedback. People hated it, revolted. And a lot of really uh, you know, tough calls came through support. So they basically put the color back in and then wrote an algorithm that would gradually incrementally change it to white over six or 12 months or something like that. Mm -hmm. And when they finally did it, not a peep. Nobody even noticed it because it was just in such small increments, they changed the value of the color to get to right. where they needed the business to be for yeah. whatever reasons, right? So um, it's interesting that, you know, I think it depends on the context. I, I, I don't want to feel like I bought into this and now you're pulling the rug out from underneath me and almost like a bait and switch and getting me to commit to and keep paying you for something that I didn't buy from you. Right. You know, and that's where so you will see people walking, you know, voting with their feet, right? They're going to leave the platform right. or they'll suffer through it and get comfortable with it. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, the context matters in these things. Uh, yeah, I love that, especially because my parents are, are into Pandora and I'm on Apple Music as well. So it's like I, I could do this very, this very same thing without commercials. <laughs> right. Um, but they're getting it. They're getting a different, a different service. Um, so. One of the interesting things that I, that ties into this that we we're discussing was how to utilize data properly. Um, 
emphasizing data versus intuition when you're making design decisions. Mm. Um, Let me pause you right there for a second. I, I want to, one, one quick point I want to hit and I, and maybe it'll come back. You know what? I'm going to let you keep rolling because I was going to go back to a data point about the Netflix thing, but we'll hit it in this uh, design versus uh, data driven decisions, but go ahead. Sorry about that. No, that's cool. We can, we can totally roll into what you're, what you're discussing. Okay. Well, okay. Well, yeah. Okay. Since I, since I ruined your whole nice little transition. (laughs) So really, again, I was as, as you know, when, when Jesse and I are getting ready for these conversations, we'll have, you know, preliminary conversations to kind of get the high level of what we think is interesting in the news or articles that we've shared. And when we were talking earlier, I said, you know, the older that I get and the more I really start to uh, focus on what design is actually trying to accomplish, I get further and further away from the, uh, the, 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 the elegance of it, the brand of it, the aesthetics of it, all those kinds of things that we as designers got into the business for. Now, mm-hmm. trust and believe that it is in no way saying we are, it is going to be, I put it like this, being designed well, meaning visually appealing, delightful, easy to use, memorable, et cetera, that's table stakes. I expect it to be that regardless, right? So, so it's not an excuse to say, oh, this can be crap just because I'm concerned with making sure how this thing performs. So, you know, Netflix now, you know, going back to being at the boardroom or in, 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 you know, the goals and objectives that the product team probably has is like, hey, guys, look, we've got, you know, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 million billion dollars of debt. And, mm-hmm. you know, we make so much money per month. Looks like they make around about a, a, a billion dollars per month in revenue. So say they're 12 billion in revenue, but you got 40 billion dollars of debt. That's a big gap that you got to close. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they got to figure out how do we monetize this? And, and again, I'm sure, and again, we looked at an article earlier that said, and this was from last year, but it said that they have upwards of, you know, $15 billion, um, in subscriber, uh, and streaming, uh, not, not subscriber, but streaming, uh, obligations. So basically if, if, you know, the producers of Stranger Things says, great, we'll make this, con- well, that's a Netflix original, so maybe that's not a good example. But let's pretend that Stranger Things team said, hey, we'll license this content to you for X money and you got to pay us and everybody on this credits royalties. Well, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a, Netflix's platform has to pay that back. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now it doesn't look like the math is shaking out in their favor. And again, we are not analysts. We are not financial people. We are just dudes that read the news. Um, so, you know, they, they might need to say, wow, we got to start pulling some levers to, 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 to monetize some of this to pay back our investment. So how are we going to pay back our investment? Well, we need to get more people seeing more of our content. Why? So that they tell more of their friends, our subscriber base grows, and we can start, you know, getting more of that, that subscription models from families as well as from individuals, and that'll drive our monthly numbers up, and then we can scale and grow and, and start knocking down some of this debt and paying back our investors that have obviously bet on us to you know, put this money down. So there's a whole bunch of business logic, I'm sure, as to why they had to start serving up some of this content. And to your very good point at the beginning of this, you've scrolled for 10, 15 minutes and not found anything. Right. And they're sitting there saying, wow, we've got all this content. And if we're paying all this money for all this content just to sit on these digital shelves and collect dust, we are in a terrible business. So we have to figure out some very smart, you know, uh, interactive solutions to really serve up this content and help make it make money for us, you know? Yeah. 
And you know, the MO of these platform companies is to scale as rapidly as they can, reach uh, a certain point, and then flip the switch on monetization. So uh, Netflix is primarily driven, uh, their revenue is primarily from their subscri subscriptions, right? And so uh, once they reach a certain scale, there's only a few ways, well, I won't say only, there are a few immediate ways that they can start to increase that monetization. Um, charge people more for the service, which they've done a few times already. Um, right. It used to be like seven ninety nine, and then it was nine ninety nine, and then it's thirteen ninety nine for you know four K, you know HDR, Blu Ray, whatever you know uh, streaming quality you want to have. So they've done that. But in order to justify those higher prices, they have to uh, increase the perceived value of the service to subscribers or else we unsubscribe. Because it's like, you know what? This is my breaking point. This is too much. Uh, I'm not paying for this anymore. And one way that they can do that is by highlighting uh, all the great content that they're paying for that you are unaware of. Um, and so I wonder if, if Netflix is at that stage where you know they're starting to think more seriously about how, do, how can we um, support or justify these increased prices that we're going to be charging people? Um, and how can we encourage people to find more value in our service? Yeah, and I think that's the, the challenge for all, all businesses, right? I mean, you can get away with, and we've seen it in all these uh, internet startups and, and even, even other businesses, I think, you know, um, you know, Facebook, right? It, it was, it was collecting, you know, connecting you to your friends and it didn't charge you anything. Google didn't really charge us anything up front. And then after a while, it's like, or maybe they had, they had it, obviously they had a, you know, monetization strategy there, I'm sure early on, but they first got us all hooked. They first got us addicted. They first made us fall in love. Right. And they started kind of charging us, you know, for everything. And, and so, you know, I have a, you know, I have a, a project that I'm working on with some uh, friends and it's, it's, you know, we're having to go through a, a, uh, an incentive strategy mm -hmm. and it's very fascinating. It's like the incentive strategy that you can use to incite or encourage people to come to your new tool or platform or service is great. You know, if you just give them like, you know, think about discover or any of the credit cards that give you cash back rewards, mm -hmm. right? wow, everybody can run and jump to that thing, but that can also break you. Yeah. You know, it, it, you know Amazon Prime is, is, is a, I don't know, again, all the ins and outs, but man, they're giving us a lot of value for a very low price, a better one. Let's go to MoviePass, right? MoviePass says you can go to any movie you want, all, what, 30 days out of the, out of the month, go, go see a movie. Mm -hmm. you know, except for like there's, you know, kind of peak times and, and, and you know, uh, new releases, you have to wait can't go on opening weekend or they have a couple stipulations, but basically they just went from watch as many movies as you want. And they just had to change it to, you can only watch like three movies or, and they said, well, the average user only visits, goes to the movies three times a month on movie pass. So we're just going to make that how many movies you get. And it's like, Whoa, you incentivize your platform and created this, this, this environment where people could buy this card for nine ninety nine a month and go see as many movies as they want at the, at the studio at the Metroplex, and now right. you're 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 pulling the rug out from under people because that same amazing tactic that got people in the door is also breaking your bank and you can't afford yeah. to keep it going. So it, it, it's fascinating, right? The things that get us hooked. These companies are like, yo, 
we spent a ton of investor money. We spent a ton of sweat to get this thing built. And now we have to start paying the piper. So we got to start selling ads. We got to start changing our business model. And, you know, I don't know. That seems like kind of the way a lot of companies go. And they have a choice, right? They could say, hey, we're going to bootstrap it and stay small and and stay, you know, kind of really serving our core customers that really love this service. And we're going to commit to that. Or we're going to grow and go and, oh, then we went public. Oh, we owe our shareholders, you know, and our board of directors demands this. And now we got to, and we got to, and now your focus has changed. Right. And we talked about it, you know, on numerous occasions, you know, Elon Musk and the challenges that, you know, he seems to be experiencing with Tesla being a a public company. It's like, dang, I just want to sit here and solve this the right way as opposed to all the pressures that I get from everybody else. So it's a tough place, man. The same thing. You know, um, there's a, there, I, I love Kings of Comedy and Steve Harvey, I think it's on Kings of Comedy, but, or Steve <laughs> Harvey, or the less the comedian is like, you know, there's an old saying, the old, 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 uh, old grandma used to say, the same thing it took to keep your baby hooked, it's going to take the same thing to keep him. You know, it's yeah. like, hey, if you were coming out and you were giving me all these great incentives and rewards and cash back and deals and then you cut it off it's like well i don't need this anymore because the only reason i got this was for what you were offering me and as soon as you start changing that it's not that people hate your product anymore or less it's just you just change the reason why i bought your product that's all yeah and to your point you mentioned amazon prime uh we just saw this similar thing happen with uh twitch prime so twitch is a video streaming platform um, for those who are unaware and where essentially you will go to uh, twitch.tv and you, you can watch a number of different broadcasters play video games live um, and you can chat with them in their chats and things like that. Um, there is a benefit called Twitch Prime that allowed you to link your Amazon Prime account with your Twitch account and get one free subscription. Subscriptions are just like on YouTube where you can subscribe to a channel, you can subscribe to a channel on Twitch uh, for a, a fee, uh, $4.99, $9.99, or $24.99. Um, but Twitch Prime allowed you to get a free subscription every month to any one channel. And there's a number of different benefits that come with Twitch Prime, um, special emotes that you can use in the chat and things like that. But one of the benefits was um, ad-free viewing. So anytime a broadcaster would turn on, you know, ads, an ad roll, if you had Twitch Prime, you didn't have to see those ads. Um, and this is at, at $4.99, uh, the Twitch Prime uh, subscription. Uh, so on Monday, Twitch uh, announced that ad-free viewing is no longer a perk of Twitch Prime. And if you want to keep that ad-free viewing, you have to pay an additional fee um, to where it's now $10 instead of 5 Five dollars. So what they did was they rolled out this, you know, this this uh, this membership benefit to to uh, they made it available to a, a wide audience. People, you know, might have bought in and gotten used to it, and you know, enjoy being able to have that free subscription to to their favorite broadcaster. And now Twitch is saying, well, if you want to keep that benefit, you have to pay a little bit more. So again, it's that scale and then monetize strategy that we that we see happening time and again. Yeah, man. And, and, you know, we have to remember these companies are providing this service. Sure, it might have started as a community thing or a passion project or something that would be cool for us. And it, you know, grew and gained adoption. Now they're, you know, not that they're trying to get 
get money only, but I mean, corporations are designed to provide a service and or product and make money from providing that service exchanges of goods and services. That's what it's all about. So I can't, we might not like some of the practices that they deploy, but I mean, I can't, if I'm being honest, I can't say that I don't get it, you know? Yeah. And we're all working for companies. A lot of us that, you know, Oh yeah. There are, there, there are nonprofits out there, uh, but by and large, you know, companies want to make a profit, you know, and, and this is just kind of part and parcel with that. Um, yep. And I think, you know, going back to our discussion earlier about um, how to balance um, data driven uh, design solutions with, you know, your intuition. Um, one of the things that we were looking at when we were discussing the Netflix, uh, the Netflix changes were what's the data that they have that they're looking at. Um, and what were those conversations that they had with, you know, the product teams as they were uh, testing internally um, and rolling this out? You know, what were the kind of business requirements that the design teams were trying to meet? Um, and how did they do that? Because you imagine that if you test these things with um, a large enough number of people, you're going to hear that pushback that we talked about where I don't want ads. I don't, you know... This, this is harming me. This is not the context in which I expect to see these advertisements. This makes me unhappy with, with your service. Um, right. there, pro there had to be some member testing that happened or some user testing that happened that said, hey, this might be a bad direction to go. Our, our members don't like this change. Um, and that feedback had to be balanced with the business requirements of, oh, well, we need to monetize this uh, series. We spent X amount on the series. We need to uh, spread that cost out among our subscribers. This is one way to increase discoverability and, uh, and improve product recommendation engines. Um, you know, a lot of diff a lot of times, different teams are using different sets of data, um, and so how do you make decisions there? Right, uh, data doesn't tell you what to build. So, right, I just found that that, that process really interesting. Yeah, I think uh, as, as we do move into this world where it is, you know, more and more data, um, and I'll quote somebody, you know, one of our one of our guys at work that I was talking to today, he said, man, we have so much data running through our systems. Um, how do you utilize it best, you know? And when he was speaking of systems, he was thinking, you know, he's talking about like through Facebook, through Google, through your own, you know, uh, product, you know, it, you know, that your product kind of you know, uh, ha has passing through. I mean, you know, it's like, so what, what do you do? And, and the reality is um, data is great, but, you know, data can also be, be looked at through two different lenses. So for example, um, there's a project currently at my job that, uh, well, I mean, you know, inside of a corporation, typically, you know, various parts of the business are going to be asked to contribute. Hey, we mm -hmm. have a goal, you know, we have a goal of whatever hundreds of millions of dollars that we need to make, or, or, or we need to move this, this metric from, from, from 5% to 10% or from 10% to 11%, whatever the, the deal may be, or we need to, you know, Hey, we got a, a revolving door here, man. People are, 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 are leaving customers are leaving or, or whatever the case may be. We need to, you know, limit the, the number of attrition. Hey, our products aren't getting good reviews. So whatever the metric is, you're asked to contribute to that. Mm -hmm. How, you know, come with ideas. Some companies um, are, you know, not concerned with how it impacts users as long as it uh, meets the the objective. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I can speak for being owned under a private equity company. 
a lot of times private equity, they're an investor, right? They come in and they buy your company. They streamline it as best they can to maximize their, their exit and their profits. And they want to sell right. you for as much as they can and make as much money on their investment. That's, that's the name of the right. game. So for private equity, just to kind of use them as the bad guy for a second, they might say, I don't really care if customers like it or not. If they're going right. to pay for it or be forced to pay or it's going to generate more revenue or increase our profit margin, then we got to do that. Um, yeah. You know, and so and then on the other side, you have some of those companies like I, I remember hearing a case study. Well, not even a case study. I guess the way IBM used to operate. IBM used to never lay anybody off until like the mid 80s or the late 70s or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and their whole thing was, hey, if Jesse's a good worker and he's smart and he's effective here in the, you know, the, 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 the data analysts or the data analytics side of the business and we start seeing that there's a decline there, well, we're going to move him over to supply chain management because he's a smart guy mm-hmm. and he can come over to this side of the business and he can help us there too. So they invested right. in their people and they built and matured their people. So it's like, Hey, we're going to put you in another part of the business, train you up and you can help us maximize this part of the business. And then, you know, obviously, you know, in the eighties and again, seventies and eighties companies started finding that, you know, when you lay off people, you can really increase your operating income, which is great for stockholders and all that kind of stuff. And everybody's greedy. So we're going to start letting people go. And IBM got on that train too. And IBM saw a, a, a dip in, in their, you know, uh, rating and ranking and number one status in the, in the, you know, in that industry. And again, but they early on were totally concerned about the product. Sure. But the people first, and then they got, they got to the, that, that era where we were all about big dollars and it kind of crippled them for a bit. And now I think they've got a healthy mix of both. We're going to build world-class products, but it's going to take world-class people to do it, you know? Um, So it's fascinating when companies have to make those hard decisions. Um, And then you start looking at data and you can skew it any way you want, really. Right. Um, I heard an interesting quote, I think it was last week, on Masters of Scale, where Reed was uh, speaking with Marissa Meyer. And um, he was talking about the way that she uses data. And um, the analogy was that the more data you have, uh, the higher up your diving board is. Right. So the better view that you have of everything that's happening around you. Uh, and it can better inform what you can expect um, at the bottom, right? Like you can see, oh, there's a few lifeguards here, there's people over there, right? You just have a more clear view. Um, But at some point you do have to kind of take the jump. You have to jump off the diving board. Um, And that's kind of where the intuition part of this comes in is that there are a lot of different metrics that you can look at um, when you're making any decision, but the metrics themselves don't tell you what to do. Um, they can give you directionality, like uh, oh, this looks like a trend that's happening, or these are the numbers here. But at the end of the day, there is still a decision that has to be made that's not necessarily evident from the data that you have available to you. Um, there is an, an element of your intuition that goes into those decision-making processes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that we're we're looking at as we're trying to contribute and help our company succeed is, you know, we're, we're looking at all, every area of the uh, conversion process. So 
from the time people land on your your page is the content relevant mm-hmm. giving them all the information they need uh is it, is it delightful are they falling in love with this experience or this message in order to make a decision to either contact you or to buy or to sign up and then once they say yeah i want it great now we get them into a new part of the funnel where it's through this registration or or checkout flow and things like that and are we removing all these barriers right so so we're looking at the data in in our company right now in one example, and there's a tremendous uh, opportunity where you see um, with a certain type of uh, checkout experience where it's really, really high numbers, but a a pretty steep fall off as far as the amount of people that get through and, and actually confirm that they purchased. Um, and, 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 and then there's another set of numbers that show, yeah, it might be at, you know, mid level, mid fifties, of people that get onto the the, the confirmation or the uh, checkout funnel, and you know, they still converted about the same the same rate. So two people look at those numbers two completely different ways. One group says, "Well, it doesn't matter that a larger number come into the funnel at the top; they convert out the bottom at the same." Another group says, "Yeah, but there's a lot of opportunities to convert more people up there at the top of the funnel, and if we can." can reduce the fall off rate, then we inevitably are going to convert more people, you know, so two very, you know, the both perspectives are, 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 you know, in my opinion are valid. Um, You're just looking at the data through two different eyes, set of eyes, two different motivations, two different skill sets, two different, you know, uh, uh, past experiences, right? One team might've had complete failure to see the full landscape, but, it's also kind of nice to be a little bit lower so I don't hurt myself and I can stay in contact with the people and the lifeguards. I don't like skydive out of the, out of the clouds and, you know, break my bones on the water, you know, coming down. So, yeah. And I think that kind of highlights another issue um, that we need to be clear on is we want to be as inclusive of as many different viewpoints as we can be. We want to take, um, into consideration as many data points as we can, right, to make sure that we're making the most informed decision possible. But at the end of the day, that person making that jump needs to be clearly defined and enabled and empowered to do that um, in their organizations. Um, Sometimes I think that we can run the risk of overcorrecting, right? Like there has been a lot of discussion around the fact that there are no star designers who can come down from on high and have the answer to everything, right? Um, the auteur designer, uh, this myth, this mythos of like Steve Jobs coming down and having the iPhone like perfectly conceived with no iteration, like here, go build this. This is the thing. Um, Obviously, that's not the case. There's a lot of collaboration and iteration that takes place uh, when you're building any sort of product. But it is important that we don't overcorrect and have everyone making the decision because if you do that, you run the risk of not making any decisions and stagnating on a lot of different things. Oh, yeah. Analysis paralysis. I think you have two. I mean, there's obviously, you know, the spectrum is 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 long as it is wide, I would imagine. And maybe that's not called a spectrum anymore. But um <laughs> you know, you do have on one end people that will just analyze the the life out of things. And then you have other people that are just going to go on gut. And, you know, I think, again, I think both are necessary because, um, 
you know, I kind of made the comment before, there's a lot of businesses that are extremely successful and they don't have access to the, you know, the millions and millions of data points that, that, that some companies do. Right. And, you know, it's like some companies have millions and millions of data points and they're getting them spit out through amazing dashboards and, 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 uh, and you know, BI tools and all that kind of stuff. And they still can't make a decision or the decisions that they're making are goofy and stupid and didn't work, yeah. you know? So it's, you know, um, again, going back to cryptocurrency and blockchain, here's your blockchain plug for the, for the evening. Um, <laughs> you know, a, a buddy of mine, we were talking about like, how are these companies coming up with the, the amount of tokens that they want to issue when they, when they launch a platform and if they're using them as an incentive in an engine, how do they calculate how many they're going to need? And, and, you right. know, he, he was telling me that, um, you know, you know, a lot of it's made up, right. They're doing their best to guess, even with all this data, he said, because he had a, a partner of his that was, that worked for bank of America. And he said, mm -hmm. they have machines running all the time, all day, every day, calculating all these different outputs and scenarios and returns and all this stuff to try to figure out where the good investments are, how many of these kind of customers they need to get this kind of output or, you know, and he's like, so, I mean, you know, even with all that massive compute power and, and, and data analysts and, and analysis, you know, you know, the regular man doesn't have that kind of decision-making. Right. And, right. You know, so we're just kind of like saying, hey, the data says this, and based on this information, I'm going to run these tests. That's what I do think is to our advantage. The data is right. great. The hunches are great. Take both of those, put them together, and actually now go run the test. Yeah. That's what really needs to happen. I think that's where I don't have to be right. And humble yourself. Take away the ego and say, look, I can have a completely different lens that which I'm looking at this problem through than you do. And, 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 and we can both go and, and just see what works. Yeah. It's, it's not a contest, right? We're all in it for the same goal, I hope, to help the company, you know, produce and, and hit its goals and metrics and make sure that our customers are satisfied with whatever it is we're providing them. Yeah. You know, I don't get my, I've stopped getting my, uh, of course, everybody wants to be, you know, a good contributor and make sure that their ideas are, are well received and liked and all that stuff. But I don't care who wins. I really, really don't care who wins. I just want the best outcome. But what right. I do not stand is when somebody else is competing. Right. And then, okay, well, if you're competing with me, then you're sacrificing the good of the customer or the good of the company. Right. I'm not competing with you. I am trying to hit that goal that the company said they need us to hit. And I'm trying to take into consideration the person that I'm supposed to be building and designing and solving problems for. I can go get in my car and go drive home and play with the apps and the websites and Netflix and watch the stuff I want to watch. I'm here to do a very specific job. And I think we lose sight of that when we get into these design decisions. We start getting into these, you know, forgive me, we start getting these pissing matches with each other. Right. It's like, what are you trying to solve for? Does the data help you? If you don't have that data point, then do you have some other vehicle, you know, that you can use to try to get the best answer and then put it out in the marketplace and let the people tell you, they'll be happy to tell you and then make yeah. adjustments accordingly and keep it trucking. Yeah. I think what's important is that there's a strong um, mission or, or a shared mission or a shared vision 
for what it is that you're supposed to be accomplishing as a company. Um, because we've seen uh, strong singular visions work. We've seen more democratic design processes work. Um, yeah. We've seen different organizational structures work. You know, famously, Apple, um, at least in, in the past, had had a very tightly knit organization, a very hierarchical decision-making structure. And Amazon, you know, each of their lines of business is essentially its own company. Um, and so the decision-making is much less connected. You don't have to go through as many meetings as you might have to in a more hierarchical structure. But both are, are wildly successful companies. Um, and so I think that you can kind of take that thread through into design decisions and how, um, how we make them. Uh, as long as there's a shared vision for what you're supposed to be accomplishing, I think you can make both approaches work. Absolutely. And, and, you know, not to, not to refute what you were saying about Apple. I know one thing that I've read is that one of the big keys to success was that they made design and delightful product experiences priority a high priority for everybody in the organization. Yeah. And, and that, that was great, right? Cause even though they had the, the structure and the hierarchy and I'm sure Steve jobs and a lot of his leadership teams and, and visionaries and, and good thinkers, you know, brought a lot of great ideas to the table and, you know, they sifted through them and pushed them down and through the organization and out to us. I, I, I think that the thing that they did that was very, very I'm jealous of is that they got everybody in their organization to care about, the design of the thing. And so it didn't matter if you were in HR, it didn't matter if you were in service or support, didn't matter if you were in product or, or whatever part, you know, the, 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 it didn't matter. Everybody was looking at it from, is this a great design experience? Is this a great experience for people? And that helped right. to unify folks. Because inevitably you're going to have people always thinking that their idea is better or, man, I'm going to, Joe talked down to me in this meeting, so I'm going to make sure that I get, you know, all that kind of politics stuff's never, right. never rid of it. But what was great is that they had a, a unifying theme that everybody could work and live off of or, you know, live and work from. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that, again, when we're looking to, um, make sure that we collect as much input as possible from a number of different teams. When you're working on a software product, there are so many decisions that need to be made. Um, and if there isn't a clear kind of uh, decision owner, uh, you can start to experience analysis paralysis. You know, one team is working with one data set and another team is working with a different data set and they contradict each other. Well, now what happens, right? Um, especially if, you know, the teams are intransient, uh, which again, you know, this is just an example. Um, I think m the majority of us really want to collaborate well and work well with others, but there are instances where one team really feels that their way is the right way and the other team feels differently. Um, right. and through, through all of the, the kind of meetings that you can have with each other and, and hashing out those differences, there may be at the end of the day, you, you disagree and move on. Um, and so which direction do you go when you say, you know, we're going to disagree on this and we're going to move on. So there needs to be a clear kind of person who's like, okay, this is the direction that we're going to take it. Um, and again, this just kind of harkens back to that being willing to make the jump, make the leap. Um, someone who's looked at all the data and said, okay, I see your point. I see your point, And this is where we're going. And you hope that, you know, the teams have felt empowered throughout the process, 
so that they understand, hey, I might disagree with this decision, but that's okay. I fought, you know, I did my due diligence uh, on this and I'm going to trust, you know, the leadership to, to take this in the right direction. And, you know, one of the things that we hear, um, you know, is, is consensus. You know, mm-hmm. it, it is nice to have it when you can. Um, at some point, somebody does have to take the leap and that's why you get paid the big bucks to be the person that's on deck <laughs> to, you know, make that final call. But, you know, what I love doing on our teams is saying, hey, guys, here are all the facts that we know. Yeah. Here are all the options that we have available to us that we can go out here and here's the ones that have tested and here's the way that we've translated the data. You know, now, um, if all things are being are equal, you know, the data is coming back one or two points difference here and there. It's not really making a big difference then, you know, and, and okay, well, you know, we got kind of the same feedback from customers and partners and everybody else. Ah, golly, man, dang, we're left to make a human decision. The data isn't overwhelming. Like, Oh, the red pill is better. You know, right. it's like, we have to make a decision. Then great. Now let's sit down and let's talk about it. And, Let's see if we can come to consensus. So, hey, here's all the facts. Here's all the data. Jesse, I hear your point. Sarah, I hear your point. Matthew, I hear your point. You know, Becky, I hear your point. Fred, I hear your point. Okay. Can we all agree that at least this is common? We can agree on this. Okay, great. Yeah, we can all agree that this is the bedrock. This is the baseline. Okay, great. Can we all agree that this needs to be an e-commerce solution? Yes, we all agree it's e-commerce. Okay, great. Got it. Okay, so can we agree that this shade of blue is better? Well, I really like that one, but is it going to make or break a difference if it's periwinkle or violet blue? I mean, navy blue. No, yeah. you're right. Okay, it's fine. Okay, great. You're great. All right, so hopefully we can get it whittled down to where, you know, people don't feel like they're not being heard and they say, you know what, great. In the grand scheme of things, because I tell my designers this all the time, I'm like, think about this. When you go present a design solution to somebody, you've already won the battle. Mm-hmm. Cause you're going to come out of that meeting and they're going to say, Hey, a few tweaks I'd like to make, you know, let's say you walk into the room and you're designing a car just to make it easy. And you design the, the model three mm-hmm. and, and, and Elon steps back and says, yeah, you know, the taillights aren't really quite what I wanted to see and the way that the logo on the grit on the, on the grill and eh, it's kind of awkward, but how about the, and the door handles, can we give a slightly different shape to those door handles? That's what mm-hmm. he's going to say. He's, he's rarely going to say, this is crap, throw it out, start over, new clay, go from broke, go from, right. go from scratch. He's not going to say that. He's, so you've already won 80 to 90% of your design decisions have gotten through. And then it's going to yeah. be about shaping them and tailoring them and refining them to make sure that they hit whatever the aerodynamic specs are or the, the, the engineering requirements or the, you know, who knows what, right? So get out of the business of trying to win trying to get your way, you know, focus on, am I actually solving the problem? That's why math is so cool. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Nobody's opinion. It doesn't matter if it's four plus one or two plus two or, or, you know, five minus one, you know, it's all going to come out the same way. And I pray I just did those numbers, right? I might, <laughs> I don't know what the hell number I was trying to add up to. Um, but you get my point. Yeah. You know, it's like, just solve the problem. I don't care how you get there. Just get to the, get to the right solution. You know what I mean? Yeah. It always helps to recenter on that as the, the main objective. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, hey, with that, let's, uh, let's wrap it up right there. I think that's a good place to end. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for listening. To stay up to date with all things Colored by Design, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor.fm. 
And if you enjoyed listening, please leave us a positive rating on your platform of choice. We really appreciate it. See you next time.